Well, good morning again. I am delighted to be introducing our, our special guest, Reverend Jennifer Holtz, all the way from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Jennifer uh, is, hails from Colorado. She and I met in seminary at Fuller Seminary in Southern California. The Lord called me and Cheryl to Minnesota, and the Lord called uh, Jennifer and Adam, her husband, and their three kids back home to Colorado Springs, where she has served the past 17 years at First Presbyterian Church Colorado, her home church, and she now serves as the executive pastor of a church of, I think, 3,400 people, uh, and they are uh, faithfully serving the Lord in the city. Remember our series uh, in the fall, Bless Our City. Well, First uh, Press Colorado Springs is truly doing that, putting hands and feet to the gospel in the midst of, of change, and what God is doing there is a beautiful thing. Thankful for her uh, coming all the way out here to answer our questions uh, after the service uh, for the luncheon that I hope you'll stick around for. But uh, she arrived Friday night, and then yesterday we met at National Presbyterian Church uh, with leaders from our presbytery, and our own Andy Herman was there for a discussion about uh, the future church and the ministry uh, to millennials. And so thankful for, for that time and her efforts in building bridges and in intergenerational ministry. She's also uh, a woman of deep faith and prayer and already having heard her preach, I know some of us stuck around to hear again. Uh, she has a good word for us today about risking together. And so would you give her a warm welcome as Pastor Jennifer comes to the pulpit. Well, good morning. It is an honor um, to be with you Thanks. this weekend and today. Um, thank you, Pastor Pete and elders, for inviting me to be with you all this weekend. I look forward to our lunch, our lunch together. I was with some of your leaders last night, just hearing a little bit about your church and the mission that God has for you. Um, just God is at work in this place. It's wonderful just to hear um, how the Spirit is moving you and leading you. The panel yesterday about thinking about the future church and how are we positioned to really reach into the next generation um, was a delightful time. And... Um, just excited to be with you. You know, it's January 8th, it's early in the new year, and I'm guessing that many of us are still kind of thinking about 2017 and wondering what God is going to do in our lives and the life of our congregations in this coming year. Um, I'm thinking a lot about that, but our church is making some worship scheduling changes in March and some renovation of a second space that we have for contemporary worship. And so we're working hard now, hoping those changes will be successful. Um, we know that most people love change. Um, and so we're really hopeful <laughs> about the coming year. Um, but as New Year's come and go, I tend to be the kind of person that writes down things that I'd like to accomplish for the year to come. And so I've done that for this year as a mom, as a pastor, as a student. Again, I've written down things, maybe you have too, of what you'd like to accomplish this year. But on Christmas weekend, our family went up to Denver where my brother lives. Um, he hosted that time for us with his family. Um, he's a, a lawyer for the government, and he's an incredibly intentional follower of Christ. In our family, he's um, probably the most spiritual, intentional person um, in our family. He's wonderful. But he decided, because it was in his space, that um, we were going to do something together before we opened presents. So you can picture all the kids sort of squirming about having to do something before presents. But he decided that he would like us to go around as a family and share with one another 
what we would like God to grow in our lives for the coming year. So using kind of the fruit of the Spirit and the characteristics that the Spirit grows within us, he asks us to each pick one of those and to go around um, and share. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so we did that. We all shared. Even the kids had something to say. As usual, they are particularly insightful. Um, Children have wonderful things to say. But for one like me who likes to set my own goals of accomplishment, it was a challenge for me to shift and think not so much about what I would like to do in the coming year, but what I would ask God to do in my life and what I would ask God to grow in my life in the coming year. Um, As you think about that little exercise, what what might you say in your life? What is one thing, perhaps a fruit of the Spirit, that you would like God to grow in you and to do a work in you this year? It's a subtle but powerful shift to move from what I'm going to do in my life to what God might want to do in my life in the coming year. As followers of Christ, we believe that God does provide everything that we need in our lives and each new year that we enter in. But, but how does scripture teach us about that provision? I want to look at that question today. As we head into the new year together, how will God provide for us? How will God provide for you? And how will you, how will I receive that provision that he has for us? So I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, beginning with the second part of um, verse 6, and I'm going to read through verse 13. Mark 6, beginning with 6b. And Jesus went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray. Lord, may your word today plant itself deep in our hearts. May the seeds of your words grow and flourish. May we be receptive to what you have to speak to us today, that our lives might follow you, that we might see you more clearly and know the plans that you have for our lives. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So in the Gospel of Mark, this sending out of the disciples comes rather early in the book. Jesus has chosen the twelve, They have been following him around, and they have heard him teach in the synagogue. They have seen him heal a few people. They've they've witnessed some of that. They've been listening to his parables and asking questions about what the parables mean. But fairly quickly, Jesus sends them out. And a question I have as I read that is, well, are they really ready? Have they had enough time with Jesus? Have they had enough class time? Have they gotten enough feedback on their spiritual gifts? Do they even know their spiritual gifts? Do they know their Myers-Briggs? Do they know their leadership styles? Do they have an effective gospel presentation ready to go? But Jesus doesn't seem to be the slightest bit worried about how green they are. In fact, it almost seems like he wants to make sure they are as vulnerable as possible as they go out. 
he instructs them to take nothing with them. No bread, no bag, no money, not even an extra shirt. Don't take your own provisions, just go. He tells them to take a staff and wear, a sandal, wear sandals, which indicates that they are travelers. That is the garb of a traveler. So other than that, leave it all behind. They are being sent out with a purpose, and they will be, need to be able to move from place to place rather quickly without a lot of baggage. They will need to be nimble and flexible, ready to move on a moment's notice. And somehow, somehow, the rest will be provided. To follow Jesus means to go where he sends you. Don't overthink it, and don't overpack. Just go. And as your needs emerge, trust that God will meet them. But to go without provisions feels just a little bit risky to me. When I got on a plane on Friday to come here, I actually did pack a suitcase. Um, I packed a bag, I brought a wallet, an extra shirt. I like to go to places prepared. I like, I, and, and so Jesus saying, take nothing, feels a little uncomfortable to me. It feels a little risky. Well, almost nothing, Jesus tells them. He doesn't send them out completely empty-handed. In the text we read, he gave them authority to cast out impure spirits. So their words would have power. And we read, he sent them out two by two. He sent them together. Go together. And while it might feel somewhat risky to go on a journey with no bread and no money and no suitcase, I would suggest that the biggest risk that Jesus invites here is going two by two. You've got to go with someone. Jesus' words here reflect perhaps how we are created. It is not good to be alone. Jesus knows a little bit about how we have been made. It also reflects the wisdom of the community. Two are better than one. And in this moment, Jesus is not really making a suggestion. It's a mandate. And he began to send them out to by two. When I left home at 18 from Colorado Springs to attend college in New England, I, like many of you perhaps, began that journey to make the faith my parents had passed along to me my own, to, to struggle with that and understand what that meant. I was attending a small secular college that at one, at one point had been founded to provide and equip men for mission work all over the world. But like many colleges in that area, it no longer claimed those missional roots. I had heard rumors that the college was fairly hostile to evangelical faith. And I actually didn't really know what that meant. But as I arrived, I quickly found other Christians on campus. I found the Christian Fellowship Group and began to meet with them. And over the next four years on that campus, I would say my faith just grew and grew. I didn't find the campus so much hostile as I did really rich soil that tested my faith and helped me understand more clearly what it meant to be sent. I was part of the InterVarsity Fellowship group there, and it was committed to one another and to the scriptures, and we believed we had been given a mission to share the gospel with our campus. This passage in Mark 6 is one I return to often because this is one of the passages that was so informative for me in those early years of discipleship and continues to form me and challenge me in my understanding of how we are sent into the world. You know, during the college season, just before students would come back, we would gather, we would look at this passage, we would study it, 
we would prepare for those coming, and we would go out together into new student orientation, and we always went two by two, because that's what the passage says. You go two by two, never alone. That part about taking no money, no bread, one jacket, that, that was easy. We were broke college students. We didn't have any of that. We went to the dining hall for food. We didn't have much clothing. We didn't spend time at all thinking about that risk. That was not a risk for us. But we did focus on being sent two by two. And I remember at age 18, it all felt so simple, so straightforward. Of course, we go together. This section in Mark, Mark 6 fulfills the call of Jesus in Mark 3 when he brings the disciples and, and he says they were called to be with him and then to be sent out. This is their first assignment, their first sending out. And as I think about it, I wonder how Jesus picked the pairings that would go out together that day. Um, you know, did he tell them, okay, everybody pick your own partner, um, which for some of us is its own special nightmare. Or, or did Jesus pair them up? Did he pick the pairs? And how did he do that? You know, who got stuck with Judas? Who paired up with the tax collector? I'm sure Peter loved the fact that he had to have a ministry partner. Did an extrovert get paired with an introvert? Did someone with the gift of mercy get paired with a prophet? Did they just pick names out of a hat? Was there a lottery? How did, how did Jesus do that? You know, I don't remember on campus if we picked our own partners when we went out or if we looked at a map and saw who lived near each other. I don't know how we did it, but we always went out in pairs. And that theme carried with us all year. So if you're going to lead a small group in your dorm, find a co-leader. If you're part of a student organization and you don't know if there are other Christians, you need to find one. You'll need a ministry partner. Who is your prayer partner this year? Never lead or do ministry alone. And Jesus sent them out two by two. As you think about this new year and where Jesus is sending you to be his presence in the world, maybe your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, the relationships that you have, who has Jesus put in your life to be your ministry partner? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a close friend or a prayer partner. Perhaps a coworker, someone at work who also is praying for that, that area. Maybe God has been laying somebody on your heart to connect with or reconnect with, who he has kind of invited you to be in partnership with as you minister. Perhaps it's someone right here in this room today who knows you well and shares your passion for ministry. You're not to go out alone. One of the principles that our denomination, ECO, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, has been built on is this concept of partnership, of ministry together, of risking together. It is required upon entering ECO that churches connect together in what we call missional affinity groups. So each church is to link with one or two other churches who share things in common, um, sometimes size, sometimes geography, and have the elder boards build relationships with the other churches of prayer and accountability and best practices. No church in ECO is allowed to be alone. Pastors, likewise, are required to be in pastoral covenant groups where we get together, check in regularly, and pray for one another. No pastor is allowed to be alone in our denomination. Now, to say that these things are required sometimes goes against our Western and individualized mentality, but we strongly believe in the mandate that we are never to do ministry alone, that God calls us to go together, Mark 6 in action. We live it out at every level, building teams, nurturing partnerships, coming alongside one another in the mission that God has called us to. It's a way of life. 
And sometimes I do think it needs to begin with a requirement because we don't naturally choose together. But Jesus doesn't give the option to go alone or with someone. He simply said, this is how you go. You go together. Seems like a fairly straightforward application. Seems fairly clear. But in my 20 years plus since college, um, and those days of literally being sent out two by two, which seems so simple and clear at that age, it feels like the two by two strategy becomes more and more complex. The bigger reality that we learn along the way is that wherever two are gathered, there is conflict, disagreement, stress. Going two by two is hard. Life together is challenging. As I've looked at some of the other Gospels, I found it interesting in how they handle this two-by-two pattern. Matthew and Luke tell this same story, but they leave out that detail. Luke adds it back in when the 72 are sent out, two-by-two, you must go two-by-two, he writes. John doesn't tell the story at all, but gives some insight into the reality that you need two witnesses to uncover the truth. And Matthew, interestingly enough, highlights the two-together pattern in chapter 18, where he says, Jesus says, Truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And as you might know, that comes out of a teaching on conflict. When you've been wronged or wounded or there's been disagreement, which we all know will happen when we go together, when we form teams, when we when we um, go two by two. But the reality is we are not merely resource items for one another in the two by two model. We are iron sharpening iron. We are in relationship, which means that there is high risk for transformation. When I was at seminary with um, Pete, I worked as a mediator in small claims court in L.A. County. I was trained, for, trained by and worked for the Center for Conflict Resolution, which was a Mennonite organization in town. And it was a good fit for my gifts. I needed to pay for seminary, but I also felt deeply convicted that understanding and being trained in conflict management was part of my call to be a pastor. I mean, the church is full of people, right? Lots of people. It's going to be conflict central <laughs> in church work. Which means from a negative point of view, lots of stress, but from a positive point of view, high risk of transformation. God is doing something, sharpening us in our lives as we come together. But here's the thing I learned most about helping people in small claims court work through their lawsuits and get to the point of coming to an agreement. And in my two years of working in that environment, I don't remember ever having to send a twosome back to the judge because they couldn't get to some kind of agreement. Here's the thing, it often took several little agreements to get to the big agreement. Let me say that again, it often took several little agreements to get to the big agreement that they needed to make. And so I began in that season to get to know Jesus as the Lord of little agreements, the Lord of small steps in the right direction. Matthew 18 became a lifeline for me. If Jesus was present in every little step, every little point of agreement, then we actually had a chance to get to the big agreement that would free people who were in the deadlock of conflict and into a place of moving forward. The Lord provides what is needed as we go two by two. 
Margaret Wheatley and her work on the future writes, it is possible to prepare for the future without knowing what it will be. It is possible to prepare for the future without knowing what it will be. The primary way to prepare for the unknown is to attend to the quality of our relationships, to how well we know and trust one another. We can't know the future, but we can prepare for the future by trusting each other, growing in our relationships together, building trust as brothers and sisters in Christ, as leaders, as ministry partners, learning to know one another and knowing that we have been sent together. We may and you may have big decisions to make, but it's okay to identify and start with the little things. Jesus is present in each step of the way, all of our relating. And Jesus sent them out together and gave them what they needed. As a church in Colorado Springs, um, having been there for 17 years, we've had a lot of opportunity to discover the provision of Jesus, especially over the past several years. We've, as Pete said, we've moved to a new denomination, and we did that as a senior pastor was leaving. And then we had another senior pastor leave shortly after that, and then we entered into this two-year season with no senior pastor. We've had lots of time to disagree, to discover conflicts, to seek the Lord for help, and to work towards little agreements together along the way. I have this memory of one of our staff meetings when we were all together in a room and we were talking specifically about our Wednesday night discipleship program that had been in the process of slowly dwindling over time. Um, but even more than that, it just didn't feel effective anymore. There wasn't a vibrancy to that time. Um, people didn't look forward to being together and to learning and growing. It just wasn't a flourishing environment. We felt like we were just kind of going through the motions. And we had this moment of clarity where we realized that just building a better program was not the answer. But we thought, what if we made a decision together that we were going to be in on this together? I mean, all in. So instead of little communities scattered across the week for convenience sake, we would align to be together on one night. What would that look like? What losses would that mean for some areas? What heart transformation would need to take place? What would be the concerns? Could we build enough trust and really be for each other in order um, to make that move? Could we share our teams, nurture our leaders together? Could we be all in together? And we decided together it was worth giving it a shot. And we began to work side by side toward that specific goal. And that fall, when our Wednesday night program rolled out, we had a 300% increase in people that showed up. All of a sudden, things were flourishing again. And, you know, we didn't make that many tactical decisions about it. We didn't tweak much about the program. We didn't spend our time there. Now, I still think it's possibly because we invited Chick-fil-A to come cater our night, and, <laughs> and the cow came, right? That's, that may be why people showed up. But the reality is that together we chose to take a risk together. We invested in one another. We, we built trust with one another. We worked together. We agreed to be all in for one another and for the sake of our church. Now, I could tell you lots of stories of places where we have shifted in our um, congregational life to this mentality of together, staff, elders, congregation. Um, but I would say that having embraced a model of two-by-two two in a new way, because we could and because we had to, we have found ourselves in new territory relying on each other and relying on Jesus for the future of our church. 
During that long season of what we like to call our transition, we learn to build trust, to carefully listen to Jesus, to work together in new ways, and to know each other more deeply. We, we now have a new lead pastor, but we have also learned that every season in the life of our church is really a time of transition. We serve a God on the move who is always leading us in new ways, calling us to listen, to be ready to go, to be flexible, to be nimble. If Margaret Wheatley is right, we actually never arrive at that future, and we never know exactly what the future will, will bring, but we trust a God who is the God of the future. Our call together is to attend to our relationships, to build trust, and to be flexible and able to move where the Spirit leads us together. And Jesus sent them out together. The two pictures that Mark gives us right after this little story of being sent out are important as we let these words sink in. And I'm going to close with these two pictures as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Mark gives to us in this chapter a picture of alone and a picture of together. The picture of alone is King Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist. Maybe you know that story. The picture of together is the feeding of the 5,000. Here's the picture of alone. Herod is alone in his kingdom. He has no friends. He can't trust his family. His kingship is marked by manipulation, isolation, death, and paranoia. In a moment of clarity, John the Baptist actually seems to be becoming his only friend. He likes to listen to John, the text reads, and so he protects him. But when push comes to shove and Herod can't risk looking bad in front of his kingdom and in front of others, he has John beheaded and he is alone once more. The next picture, the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples are with Jesus, and a huge crowd has gathered, and people are getting hungry. The disciples have a great strategic plan for getting the group fed. Send them away. They can figure it out, Jesus. You just sent us out without food, and we survived. Send them away. But Jesus gives them an impossible task. He says, you feed them. It's absurd. What? He can't possibly mean that. That vision is way too big, will require way too many resources, which, by the way, we do not have. But Jesus is the Lord of little agreements. He's the Lord of small steps in the right direction, and so he breaks it down for them. Okay, guys, what do we have? Bring it to me. Okay, okay, now have them sit down. And then Jesus takes the small amount of food they have and he prays and he gives thanks for the food and he breaks it. And he takes care of all that is needed. He provides for the whole crowd from what little they have. And then he gives it to the disciples to be the distributors of the food. And as you know, there is way too much. In the kingdom of together, where Jesus is king, there is abundance. There is food. There is filling beyond full. There is provision by Jesus. And big visions happen. Jesus sends. Jesus feeds. 
we follow, we go together. And Jesus provides everything that we need. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, which feeds us and fills us. And we thank you for the table that you have set before us today that also feeds us and nourishes us for the journey ahead. Lord, prepare us as we come to your table to receive from you. Help us to see you more clearly. Help us to be grateful for your companionship and the companionship of one another as you send us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.